God keeps his promises. So he promises to bless. He promises to judge sin. And so when we sin, we must repent. You're listening to David, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. This morning we begin a new teaching series, and really, as you just noted, we started in chapter 15. It's really a survey of First and Second Samuel. And we're gonna be looking at the life of David for the next 12 weeks or so. I have to start the series out a little bit differently because we're gonna be doing this series through this, uh, these two books of the Bible uh, very differently. And so uh, each week we're gonna basically um, read through the text of the chapter together, but then we're gonna zoom in in the sermon and highlight a smaller section of the text to exposit. And as this series, um, we will be looking at the life of David. And as this series continues, we're actually gonna um, lead us all the way up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. And every week we're gonna look at a different aspect of the life of David and how, as it leads, it culminates in Easter, that Jesus is the root of David. And so the theme of this series, as you can see, is after God's heart. Now, here's the challenge for us. Often when we do an Old Testament series or an Old Testament character study, what we do is we typically compare ourselves to that character. So when we go through a, a section of scripture in the Old Testament, we go, well, let me find myself in the story. Or worse, we say, let me find my wife in the story and then correct her <laughs> after service. Or let me think of that one guy who this really relates to and let me just convict him by sharing the sermon on his Facebook page. But see, uh, what, it's very easy for us to do that. And, and I think we miss something in scripture when we do that. I, I don't just think it, I know it. So we might say something like, I need to have faith like Abraham. Or man, I need to dare to be a Daniel. Or I need to not blow it the way Lot blew it. And those aren't wrong in themselves, but uh, they're not necessarily incorrect, but they're incomplete. Does that make sense? Not incorrect, but it's incomplete. And so we could be tempted to study David's life through this series and follow the outline of some of the sermons this way. I'll put them on the screen. And this, is, this could be the way that we're tempted to do this. We could say in the sermon today, the theme is that Saul is rejected as king. So we might leave today thinking, I need to be a better Saul. Or, or maybe David and Goliath. And we say next week, or the next few weeks, I need to slay my giants like David. Maybe we're tempted to see David and Saul, and we say, I need to respect my elders the way that David respected his elders. Or David and Jonathan, I need to be a good friend who sticks closer than a brother. Or David and Mephibosheth, you know, I really should show kindness to those who have disabilities. Or David and Bathsheba, you know, I need to be a better Bathsheba and dress modestly. <laughs> and what ends up happening is when we do that, when that's the solo lens of interpretation through which we kind of take scripture and then put ourselves in the center of the story and compare ourselves to the Old Testament characters, what happens is I become the centerpiece of the story and then I become the hero. But is that true? Am I the hero of my story? Is there anyone here that's the hero of their own story? Are you the master of your fate and the captain of your soul? Do I need to be a better Bathsheba 
Or do I need to realize that I have been wooed and violated by the world that promised me wealth and love and affection only to leave me pregnant with death and despair? And I need a better king who doesn't cover up sin by shedding others' blood to cover his own guilt, but who himself dies and covers my shame and guilt through his own shed blood. Right? Do, do I need to show kindness to people with disabilities the way that David does to Mephibosheth? Of course. But is the deeper message there that I need to realize that I'm the one crippled in my sin and I deserve the full wrath of God and yet in his kindness, the king calls to me, invites me, beckons me to come to his table and then carries me to display his grace and his kindness. Do I need to be a good friend like Jonathan or do I realize that I uh, have tried to be a friend of this world and yet that makes me have enmity with God and yet there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother and that is Jesus and he is the heir by birthright and yet he's the one who comes to the one rejected and befriends him. He's the heart of my own heart. Do I need to slay my giants or do I need to realize that I am incapable in my own power to defeat sin and death and yet one has come who defies my impossible foe and who defeats him with a single blow. You see, guys, I don't need to be a better David. There's already a true and better David, the son of David, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen? So as we study this series in every sermon, I want it to kind of give a little bit of application, but I also want to give us a gospel focus so that we will see who we are in the story. And we aren't necessarily David, but that Jesus is a true and better David. So it's impossible to understand David as king without first seeing his predecessor, the first king of Israel, and that is the man we just read about, Saul. So we just read the entire text, and Dean, great job. You nailed all the words, the names, good job. And so today we're going to start our exposition actually in verse 17. We're going to go back a lot and cover some of the ground that we missed in 1 Samuel 1 through 14. And don't worry, we're not going to read all of that. Uh, but hopefully you guys um, did read some of that this week. And every week we'll give you some um, scripture to catch up on to read. So here's what we're going to do today on the screen. We're going to look at um, Saul's potential, verses 17 and 18. He has great potential as a king. But then we're going to see what brought him down, and that is his pride, verses 19 and 21. And then we're going to see the penalty of that pride in verses 22 through 23. So that's where we're going today. Uh, if you want to use your phone to take a picture of the screen, uh, at any time you can or you can follow in the Bible app event. We have notes that you can follow along there as well. And if you're watching on Facebook Live, welcome. So look at verse 17 with me, Saul's potential. It says, Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord, Jehovah, anointed you king over Israel. And Jehovah sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Now, we kind of jumped right into the story, like a lot of Hollywood movies, you get right into the action. So what is happening here? What's the background, the backstory? So I wanna catch you up real quick. Essentially, as we begin chapter 15, God has brought the nation of Israel, descended from the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's brought them into the land of Israel. And for hundreds of years, they have been governed by God himself. Now, there was a season where these men and, and occasionally a woman was raised up to defend the nation. We call them judges, and there's a whole book uh, that describes them. 
And when we open the book of 1 Samuel, though, we're introduced to a priest whose name is Eli. And then we're introduced to this young boy who was not of the line of priests, but who was brought in, who actually becomes a prophet. And he eventually begins to train his sons, Joel and Abijah, to be judges who will kind of defend the nation the way the other judges did. But there's a problem. Samuel's sons are absolutely corrupt. And so the elders of Israel come together and eventually they ask Samuel, the prophet, to appoint a king over Israel. And that king, they're praying, would be the one who would judge over the nation. That sounds good, but the problem is their motive is corrupt. So on the screen, chapter 8, verse 5, tells us what's really happening under the surface. The people said, appoint for us a king to judge us. And then the rest of the verse says, like all the nations. We want to be like all the other nations. We want to have a king so that we fit in like everyone else. We don't want to be the peculiar people that God has set apart for himself that is governed by God. That's what the name Israel actually means, one who wrestles with and who is governed by God. We don't want that. We want to look like all the other nations and fit in with all the other peoples and not be distinct and separate. We want to be a comparable, average, normal people. And so we learn in 1 Samuel 8 and in 12 that this displeases Samuel. And so as he's praying, God communicates to him that the people are not rejecting him as the prophet. They're actually going above his head and rejecting God himself. Look at verse 8 of 1 Samuel 8 and 9. According to all the deeds that they have done, this is God speaking to Samuel, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, They've been forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, Samuel. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So God says, it's going to happen. So go ahead and, and, and allow them to have a king, but tell them what they can expect from this king. So Samuel proceeds to give them the bad news. And so here's the bad news. Uh, Samuel says, okay, here's what the king's going to do. It's kind of five things. Number one, he's going to take your sons, and he's going to draft them into his army. Number two, he's going to take your daughters, and he's going to have them now work in his government and in his palace. Number three, the king is going to take your land, and he's going to reapportion it to his own household. It's now government property. Uh, number four, he's going to tax your income and assets and reapportion it to his own household. And number five, he's going to make you indentured servants and you will regret this decision. Sounds like a great deal, doesn't it? <laughs> you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your family, your home, and you're going to be a servant yourself. Have you ever made a bad decision and you kind of went into it knowing you were making a bad decision? Have you ever done that? I had a friend who worked at a car dealer and he said, please do not buy this car, Pilgrim. And I said, I really need a car. And he goes, Pilgrim, it's 29% interest. It's the worst loan ever. Don't buy the car. And I didn't understand math back then. I said, no, that sounds good. And I signed the deal. And as soon as I did, I you know, greatly regretted that mistake. Uh, anybody have any of those yep, today? Don't share them. But, yeah, you've got those mistakes. And so that's Israel right here. And you would imagine that they would have heeded the words of Samuel and taken this warning seriously. But look at the screen. Look at their insane response. 1 Samuel 8, uh, verses 19 through 22. It says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also, here it is, may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. 
The big reason here is the Philistines kept threatening. So they wanted to be protected. But they didn't trust that God could do the sufficient job of protecting them. And so verse 21 says, When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. So they refused to listen to the reason. And sadly, all that Samuel describes, those five things will come to pass. Those do come to pass. Now we come to chapter 9 at this point. I'm giving you kind of the backstory to lead up to this. This is all part of Saul's potential. And we come to chapter 9 and we have a description of the man who is going to be their first king. And when you begin to hear this, you go, this sounds amazing. This is a great deal. It sounds bad at first, but this is going to work out. So look at the screen at 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2. It says, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite. See, I had a bunch of words too. A man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Okay, so just take a few notes here. I want to jot a few ideas down. Saul's name itself, the name Saul means inquired of God, okay? It actually, his name literally means the man you've been praying for. That's what Saul's name means, the man you've been praying for. So ladies, if you're praying for a future husband and his name is Saul, there you go. So we read here that Saul's um, appearance is, the word is handsome, but it's not just handsome. I mean, I don't know if you saw that, but it's a, the most handsome man in all of Israel. So if they were to have kind of the bachelor Israel version or maybe, uh, you know, whatever, uh, Mr. Universe, right, he would have won that. And not only that, but we learned that he's young, that he's, he's incredibly tall. So he's the tallest of Israel. So he's like head and shoulders above everyone else. Not only that, but his family is rich and he's from the tribe of Benjamin. And the tribe of Benjamin is very humble a tribe, a very favored small tribe. And so later, um, as he's originally kind of ordained king, he doesn't even want to be king. They line up everyone, they, they, they cast lots, they come to Benjamin, and then they come to his family and they come to Saul, and they can't find him. He's hiding in the baggage. He doesn't even want the accolades and the attention. So it's not like he walked in and said, the new king is here, best looking guy in all of Israel, head and shoulders above the rest. No, he's hiding out. He doesn't want it. He even begins to prophesy with some of the prophets of Israel. So he's a spiritual man. It says that God gives him a new heart. This is incredible potential. We have the tallest, handsomest man in the entire nation. This guy is, you could say, presidential. Who would not want Saul for a king? Just imagine that there's a candidate in your political party, and that candidate is young, wealthy, humble, and sincerely wants our nation to succeed the perfect specimen for a king. And I would argue that this is the word of God. Is This is God's kind of way of showing all of mankind, all of Israel, that you bring the very best that you have to offer. Bring the very best. And let's see what can happen when, when we attempt this in our own strength. But see, this is not the end of Saul's story. Uh, let's look back at verse 17 again. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 17. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes... Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Now, some translations have verse 17 and 18 all in past tense. 
So you would read it this way. Though you were little in your own eyes, were you not anointed king? And the Lord sent you on a mission. So that it's all past tense. So you could say that at one time Saul thought that he was little. But then in verse 12 of this same chapter, we see him making a monument to himself. He actually builds a monument to his own name. Something has gone sadly awry, and that is that his pride has come to the surface. So let's look at the second section, Saul's pride. Look at verses 19 through 21. This is Samuel again. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And then you see kind of this switcheroo, this little blame shift. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now, if I can have your attention, the pride here in Saul is blinding. And that's an accurate depiction of pride. It's blinding. It actually can be so intense to you that you don't even see that you have pride. He doesn't even see that he's disobeyed. His pride, like all pride, has blinded him. One person said this, love this quote, said, Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. I love that. Pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Now Saul is totally confident, I'd even say arrogant, that he had fully obeyed God. But what was the mission that God had sent him on? If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, look at verses 2 and 3 really quick. We won't have it on the screen. What was the mission? It says in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Okay, so there's kind of a backstory here. There's a lot of history, a lot of grace that God has had, a lot of space that he's given the Amalekites. But now judgment day has come. And so he says in verse 3, Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. And this was hard to read it. It's hard to read it again. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. That is hard for us to understand. Now, before we go on any further, why would God want the utter destruction of the people of Amalek? Why would God desire that? And what we have to do is we have to zoom out from this verse to other verses and it's important, guys, that we don't take one verse and then make theological assumptions from one verse. That's what the cults do. They take one small obscure verse and they make it mean something everywhere, which it doesn't. And so we have to look at all of Scripture when we interpret different verses. So let's look at some more Scripture on the Amalekites. And let's see, as a best practice in note-taking, jot these down, and uh, we'll kind of walk through some of these. So the first one is Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. I'm not going to read all these verses. You guys can read them later. But the idea here is God says, remember what Amalek did to you. When the people of Israel were coming up out of Egypt, the, the whole people of Amalek, the Amalekites, would be the ones who would come at the back of the tribe of Israel. They'd come to the back of the army. Now, you would typically put your, your soldiers, your warriors, and the leaders in the front of the, of the army. And then in the back, as you were kind of taking a group of people, uh, you know, caravanning and exiled people on foot, you would typically uh, have kind of the leaders up front and the powerful people up front. But then the people that are straggling behind are generally those who are elderly, disabled, those who are, are sick or they have infirmities and they're unable to keep up. 
the young, the children, the babies. And so what we learn from Deuteronomy 25 is that the Amalekites would not strike the, the, the fighters first. They would go and they would fight against the sick, against the children, against the elderly. They would go cut off those who were in the back of the pack, those who were basically defenseless. That's cowardly, that's shameful, and that's wicked. There's another verse, jot this down, Exodus 17, verse 14. It says, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. So make sure this goes to the next generation. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So this wasn't going to happen in Moses' lifetime. It didn't happen in Joshua's lifetime. It didn't even happen for a while. So God was giving them grace. But he still says eventually the Amalekites will be wiped off the planet. Numbers 24 says that Amalek, this is a, a Balaam's prophecy, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. So God would be true to this prophecy. And then in 1 Samuel 30, this is way later in our story, David's king, and it says that his men came to Ziklag on the third day, and the Amalekites made a raid against uh, the people. And essentially, it says that they carried off the women and uh, went on their way. So they're still actively fighting against Israel. Later, way later, 1 Chronicles 4.43, it says that there was a remnant of the Amalekites who were still escaping. So they're everywhere. They're still kind of existing. And then we come to a profound verse. Stay with me, guys. The book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 1, is very interesting. Way later in Israel's history, it says, After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite the son of Hamaditha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Who is Haman? Well, he's only the guy who almost single-handedly wiped out the entire Jewish race. And he's described as an Agagite. In other words, he's a descendant of King Agag, the Amalekite. And so these Amalekites were constantly, cowardly, wickedly coming against the weakest of Israel and the weakest of any nation, and they were a curse to the descendants of Abraham. And God said, those who you bless, those who bless Abraham will be blessed. Those who curse Abraham will be cursed. So God's remedy, as hard as it is to swallow, is not to spare any of these people. There weren't to be any left. They're to be wiped off the earth completely. That's the mission. Did Saul completely obey? We'll look at 1 Samuel 15, 13. It says in verse 13, that Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Now, just to keep inventory here, yes or no, did Saul completely obey the command of the Lord? No, absolutely not. And I love this next part. This is one of my favorite kind of funny moments in Scripture. Um, basically, verse 15 or verse 14, Samuel said, okay, yeah, you've obeyed the Lord. You've obeyed him completely. You wiped out everything. And then in verse 14, he says, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Love this. How can you say you fully obeyed the Lord when I hear sheep bleeding and cows mooing? But, but notice how Saul deflects. He says, well, it's the people's fault. They wanted to spare the best animals. It's their fault. And we wanted to sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Notice that little deflection. It's the Lord your God. You know, we'll, we'll get to it. But we had some things we had to do. And we destroyed everything else. It was all the worthless stuff. But we saved some of the best. In fact, he saves the king. Now, one person said this. One commentator said this. I love this. They said, I think we may safely assume that Saul is really self-serving. 
Saul certainly gains a measure of popularity for allowing the Israelites to have a good sacrificial meal with the Amalekite animals. After all, this not only means they can feast on the meat, it also means they do not have to sacrifice their own animals. Sparing the life of Agag also probably provides Saul with a trophy of his prowess and power. When Agag sits at Saul's table, he is much like a stuffed moose head mounted and prominently displayed in a hunter's den. See, church, this is damnable pride. Saul begins as king as a humble man. What great potential. And yet that potential is devastated by his pride. Pride can and will destroy an empire. That's really the title of the sermon today. Pride can destroy an empire. Pride can destroy a company. Pride can and will destroy a marriage, a friendship, a career, a ministry. It can even destroy a sermon. One of Spurgeon's students uh, was noted to go into the pulpit with an air of confidence. But then he had an extremely difficult time in preaching a sermon. So he came out of the pulpit completely red-faced, dejected, depressed, almost brokenhearted. And he went to talk to Spurgeon. And here's what Spurgeon said. I love this. Spurgeon said, if you had gone up as you came down, you would have come down as you went up. <laughs> love that. See, Pride has completely blinded Saul. Earlier uh, in chapter 13, he had offered an illegitimate and unauthorized sacrifice. He didn't have time to wait for Samuel. And at that time, Samuel said, your dynasty is now denied. You will not have a dynasty. And yet because of his disobedience here and being puffed up, now his own kingship, his own rule would be denied. And we're only a few chapters into it. So let's thirdly look at what happens to Saul, Saul's penalty. Look at verse 22 and 23. This again is Samuel. Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is the same thing as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord... He has also rejected you from being king. And so because he and his pride had been lifted up, he thought, oh, I'm just going to spare everything and I'm going to call the shots now. God has made me king and I can do what I want to do. And I'm not going to listen to the words of the prophet. Now just to time out here, we don't see the, the offices of prophet, priest, and king fully realized in one person until the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Israel, these are all types of, little glimpses of the personal work of Christ. And so the king now is operating out of this moment of saying, I now have all the authority. And so I'm going to spare who I want to spare. I'm going to spare this sheep. That cow looks good. That cow doesn't look good. We're going to get rid of him. And, and this, oh, let's keep Agag, the king. And so King Agag is kind of sitting back thinking, this is great. I'm, I'm good. Everyone's already died. I'm certainly not going to be killed. And so the scripture says, and maybe you remember when Dean was reading this, that Samuel the prophet hacked Agag to pieces. Wow. Seems a little bit extreme, but the idea here that the writer is drawing out is that there was to be complete judgment of God against sin. A complete judgment. There wasn't to be any sparing of it. He was to put Agag to the sword. And so Samuel does what Saul was supposed to do as the prophet, kind of stepping in and fulfilling what the king was supposed to do, and he's the one that completes the mission that God had given the king. And so the penalty of Saul's disobedience is that now he's rejected and he will soon be replaced as king. If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, flip over real quick to 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. 
1 Samuel 13, verse 14. This is where our theme uh, kind of comes out. This is the theme verse. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, But now, this is when Saul did the offering before Samuel. So he's presuming again. It says in verse 14, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man, here it is, after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be a prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Wow. One person said that Saul's loss of kingship and kingdom are irrevocable. And so the rest of 1 Samuel details how, in fact, he does lose at all. And so next week we'll begin to see as David is raised up, a man after God's heart, how David will fulfill what God has for him. He'll be obedient and he'll ultimately be one who gives God all the glory and doesn't presume upon God. But he's not perfect. And so we'll see where David makes mistakes and ultimately how he's a type of Christ. And David Gusick says this about this section of Scripture. He says, in coming chapters, God will raise up another man to replace Saul as king. David, in contrast to Saul, was known as a man after God's own heart. Even though David would also disobey God, the difference between him and Saul was great. Here's the difference. David felt the guilt and shame one should feel when they sin, but Saul didn't feel it. His conscience was dead to shame and his heart was dead to God. Saul's heart was so dead he could directly disobey God and still set up a monument for himself on the occasion. Now listen, church, the Bible tells us often that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God rejects those who are puffed up in themselves, and yet he draws near to those who are meek and those who are humble. And so we'll see next week how God chooses to display his glory in the life of a ruddy, young shepherd boy, David, who would be the next and greatest king over Israel. So I want to apply this passage of scripture. So if, you, if you're taking notes, I want to jot down three big takeaways for us, okay? This is some stuff for us, and then we'll talk about how uh, this is a picture of Christ. So number one, I, I really want to encourage us with this truth for us to kind of hang on to this week. Number one, God keeps his promises, Amen. That wasn't powerful enough, guys. I don't know if you trust that. Do you trust that God keeps his promises? Amen. So consider how God does not change. God says, I'm not a man that I repent. I'm not a man that I change my mind. And yet, at the end, it says, I'm sorry that I allowed Saul to be king. So what's going on here? Is God not changing his mind, but then he's changing? No. See, God doesn't change. But when Saul's conduct changed, that requires a corresponding change in God's plans and purposes for him. See, the writer uses an anthropomorphic description of God, saying the best way we can say this from a human perspective is that God regrets that he made Saul king. This is all part of God's sovereign plan. And so verse 29 reminds us that God will always stay consistent with his attributes. He will not and never change. But verse 35 clarifies that God will bless obedience and he will punish disobedience. If you remember, when he goes to strike the Amalekites, the Kenites, the Kenites, they suddenly are spared. Why? Well, they would have faced God's wrath if they came against Israel. But we learn earlier in the Bible that they blessed Abraham. And so this moment, they're able to be blessed and released. But because the Amalekites cursed Abraham and his seed, they were judged by God. So what does that have to do with God's promises? Well, here's what it has to do. God keeps his promises, all of them, both to bless obedience and, we don't like this one, to punish disobedience. No one said amen on that one. <laughs> you see, God cannot be mocked. A man reap what, uh, will reap what he sows. 
One person said this, I fear that Saul's cavalier attitude toward his own sin is similar to the way many view their sin today. He says this, for example, within Roman Catholicism, some feel rather free to sin and then go to confession and say, Father, forgive me for I've sinned. Many evangelical Protestant Christians take their sins too lightly as well. We glibly say that when Christ died for our sins, he died for all of them, past, present, and future. This, of course, is true. But this does not give us a license to sin. The grace of God must never be used as an excuse for our sin. And to presume upon God's grace and willfully sin, expecting to be forgiven, is perhaps the most terrifying sin of all. Wow. God keeps his promises. So he promises to bless. He promises to judge sin. And so when we sin, we must repent. We must turn from our sins. So church, stop using the grace of God as an excuse to sin. Paul says, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. May it never be. God is faithful to keep his promises and judgment comes to the one who will not repent. You may be here today and you've never trusted Christ for salvation. The Bible says you're dead in your transgressions and sins. And I would implore you today to come to know Christ, to to repent, to turn from your sin, to trust your eternity to Christ, to receive his grace and his mercy so that the wrath of God uh, will be uh, dealt with because of Christ. So do that today. God does keep his promises. But secondly, here's a second application for us. Number two, obedience is better than sacrifice. We read that in the text, and, and we can talk all day long about how we would die for the Lord. I used to say that as a teenager. I'm going to die for the Lord. But how many of us are willing to live for him? Saul steps up with such swagger. He's tall. He's handsome. He's the best of the best. And yet God is not impressed with our swagger. He wants our submission. Israel is impressed with how their king is head and shoulders above the rest. But does that impress God Almighty? You see, obedience is better than sacrifice. That means that 90% obedience is still disobedience. Notice that Saul spared the best of the best, including the king. But in his mind, he had fully obeyed. In his mind, I did the work that God had called me to do. I did the mission. Saul is the picturesque person who almost finished the job. Can you imagine your confidence in crossing a bridge that was 90% completed? How many of you would feel good about buying a house that was 90% safe? How many of you would like that word of, hey, the baby might be born, there's a 90% chance that they'll live? I mean, these are scary things. We want that full assurance. I see stickers on the back of cars around town, and some of them... Uh, have different numbers on them. And, of course, I've seen 26.2. And I never knew what that was until I Googled it. What's 26.2? Of course, if you don't know what that means, this picture will clear it up. 26.2 is the number of Oreos (laughs) that I can eat in one sitting. I don't know if you knew that. No, of course, that's the distance a full marathon is in miles. But I've noticed something. None of these bumper stickers say 26.1. They don't say 26.1. Why? I've seen the ones that say (laughs) 0.00. Gotcha, yeah. Because if you run 26.1, you've almost run a marathon, but you've not truly run one. And guys, we have to realize that uh, to mostly follow God is not to truly obey. Now, we know we're not saved by obeying, and go back and reference the entire Galatians series if you missed that. We're not saved by obeying, but we're saved to obey. Uh, And so to walk around mostly obeying God means that we're still disobeying. One person said this, to spare the best of Amalek is surely equivalent 
to sparing some root of evil, some plausible indulgence, some favorite sin. For us, Agag must stand for that evil propensity which exists in all of us for self-gratification. And to spare Agag is to be merciful to ourselves, to exonerate and excuse our failures, and to condone our besetting sin. Brothers, may it not be. Uh, We know that God desires for us to fully submit our lives to him and hold nothing back. But we can all admit we don't do that. right? I surrender all. Isn't that the most dishonest song? We sing, I surrender most, right? Because that's the real reality of it. So is there an area in your life today that needs to be put to death? Is there something that needs to be offered? Maybe hacked apart because to spare it will mean utter destruction in your lives. You say, well, that doesn't sound New Testament. Really? Well, Jesus said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For some of you this morning, there's an agag in your life that is causing utter destruction. You need to hack it to pieces. For some of you men, it may be pornography. For others, it may be a toxic relationship that needs to be put to death. It needs to be ended. For many of us, there's little compromises that we think are harmless, and we'll just leave them alone. But listen, God wants to bring those things to him, and he wants us to give him full supremacy of our lives. And so to obey is better than sacrifice. Number three. This is my final exhortation for our church today. Stay small in your own eyes. Like Saul began, small in his own eyes. Many of us have been given extraordinary gifts. I see some people and I wonder, you know, Lord, how come you love that guy so much more than me? Look, look at how you've gifted him. Look at how you've blessed him. It's not fair. I mean, you gave me the name Pilgrim. Lord, you know how horrible that was in high school, Lord? Yes, you do. <laughs> Talk about being rejected and despised and cast out. Goodness. Uh, Listen, remember that your potential, your potential is ultimately a gift from God. And it's to be used for the glory of God. It's not something that we boast in. So stay small in your own eyes. Uh, I heard about a salesman who is the best in his company. (laughs) And they asked him, what's your technique? How are you able to make all these sales? And he said, it's really easy, guys. Here's what you do. When you go door to door, Knock on the door. When they open the door, just say this. Hello, can I have three minutes to show you what some of your neighbors said that you couldn't afford? (laughs) Love that. Lord, guard our hearts from the curse of comparison. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Wow. I think a lot of our pride comes swelling in when we compare ourselves to others. And then we list all that we've done for the Lord. Instead, we should rest in what he's done for us, and we simply lean upon him and tell others about his goodness. Now, I used to grow up thinking, I need like a powerful testimony. I need a a big testimony. I got to do something big for the Lord. I got to be big. And we were sold this bill of goods in the 90s that you need to be world changers. You need to go out and do something big for God. And come on, go out there and make a difference. Make a splash in in the the world. Listen, church, we don't need a life that's movie worthy. I I lived a life of great sacrifice. No, listen, your soul was purchased by the Son of God who was crushed on your behalf. That is amazing news. So we don't need to jazz up the best story that's ever been told with our own highlights, right? Just put your head down and live a quiet life and give all the glory to God. Amen? Stay small in your own eyes. Humble yourselves before the Lord that in due time he'll lift you up. So to give us a gospel focus, even as we study this today, there's a temptation within each one of us to think 
you know what? I would do a better job if I were Saul. Man, what a loser. If the Lord put me in his position, I would not have disobeyed. I don't want to encourage you this morning to be a better Saul. Listen, the truth is, were we to stand in Saul's stead, you and I, I love you, but you and I would fail even greater than Saul did. Listen, we don't need to be good kings. We are rebels who need a king to come rule over us who is great, and yet he rules with humility. We need a king who does not spare the lambs for his own comfort, but who is swift to judge unrighteousness and yet is himself the lamb slain for sin. Jesus is the antithesis of Saul. And so as we close this morning, I want you to go ahead and close your Bibles, and I want to invite our worship team forward, and I want to consider as we close, consider the humility of Jesus together as though it were a diamond held in front of a black backdrop, and that backdrop being our human pride. Maybe bow your heads, close your eyes, but just consider this for a minute. We take pride, one author has said, we take pride in birth and rank, but it's said of Jesus that he was a carpenter's son. We take pride in possessions, but it's said of Jesus, the son of man has no place to lay his head. We take pride in our respectability, but it's said of Jesus, can anything good come out of Nazareth? We take pride in our personal appearance, but it's said of Jesus, he had no beauty that we would desire him. We take pride in our reputation, but it's said of Jesus, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. We take pride in our friendships, but it's said of Jesus, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We take pride in our degrees and our learning and our education, but it was said of Jesus, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? We take pride in our position, but Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. We take pride in our success, but it's said of Jesus, his own did not receive him or believe in him. He was despised and rejected. And we take pride in our abilities, but it's said of Jesus, or Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. Church, we don't need to be better Saul's and better kings. Jesus is our great king, and he fully and completely obeys the Father. To obey is better than sacrifice. So this morning, we look to Jesus as our example, knowing that the only truly acceptable sacrifice for sin that the Father accepts and delights in is the offering of his own dear son. He, Jesus, is truly the man after God's own heart. May we fix our eyes upon him. Father, we pray for those this morning who are blind to their own pride. Even an exhortation like this morning's sermon may not invoke some type of humility, but Lord, only by the power of your Holy Spirit can you break a man, can you crush a woman who believes they have all, all together, that they are sufficient in themselves. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do that work, to penetrate the heart, to soften, and to bring us low. If we're puffed up, bring us low, Lord. If we're low, laid down in humility, would you raise us up? Lord, I'd love to see this fellowship broken where the pride and the arrogance and the presumption, Lord, is brought to the cross and laid down. And we are now a humble people, a people that are thankful and grateful and who walk in great humility with one another and realize that we consider others better than our, ourselves. And this is the mind of Christ, who being very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and be made in human likeness. 
found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's because of that, Father, that you therefore lifted him up, raised him up and at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Lord, we look to you today as our cornerstone, as our solid rock, knowing that we're gonna fail, we're gonna fumble, but you're faithful. So we love you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing to Christ our cornerstone. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.